Our guest today is Nando de Freitas. Nando is one of the world's leading artificial intelligence researchers. Born in Zimbabwe, bachelor's and master's from the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, PhD from Cambridge, postdoc at Berkeley, professor at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, professor at Oxford, founder of Dark Blue Labs, which was acquired by Google slash DeepMind, where he's a research director today. Nando has won a number of best paper awards at the top AI conferences. Some of his recent works include Gauto, the first multimodal, multitask, multi-embodiment generalist agent, competition-level code generation with AlphaCode, learning to communicate, learning to learn, and playing hard exploration games by watching YouTube. Nando is very active as an educator and community builder for deep learning and artificial intelligence in Africa and South America. Nando, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. It's so exciting to be here. I'm a huge, huge fan of this podcast. And so I feel privileged to have an opportunity to be here. Thank you. I'm so honored to have you on. Now, Nando, before diving into today's conversation, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Weights and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages, from seed to IPO. With offices in SF, New York City, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including AI, SaaS, fintech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend any higher working with them. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They're used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of Weights and Biases. Now, Nando, AI has become mainstream. It's something the world seems to have, especially with recent advances in chat, GPT, and so forth, accepted as something that's really part of what the world is. Didn't used to be that way. It's a big change from our early days in, in the machine learning community. What do you think this will mean for most of the population on this planet? It's hard to imagine. It's, I mean, first of all, it's, it's been such a big change since I, you know, since I met you a, bit, you know, a couple of decades ago, and we used to go to Europe together and so on. And indeed, now everyone on the street is talking about AI. So it, it has become part of, I guess, the universal conscious. And what will AI do for all of us? I, you know, I like still my favorite way to think about it is to think of it as a tool. And, um, and I hope for a family of tools that will allow us to do more, just like microscopes and telescopes extended the range of all personal computers for that matter, extended the range of things we can do. My hope is that AI will extend the things that we can do, whether it's to create new knowledge, whether it's to solve some of the hardest problems that we face, environmental problems, energy problems. And above all, I would love to see it being for the benefit of all humans, not just one particular group, but really for humankind. I think it's a natural progression that will be ultimately very important, I think, in sort of in the very long range of many centuries or millennia into the future will be essential for our survival. So I think it's, it could be a wonderful tool provided that we we use it wisely and safely and with compassion. Now, you are at one of the, many people would say, the leading institution for AI research today, DeepMind, right, based in London. At the same time, you talk about something that you hope will benefit the whole world. How are you going to make sure it plays out that way? So one of the things that I've done you know, I guess each of us can do a little thing and I think it's important, you know, admittedly, I would not know how to do it, but all I can do is do a little bit. And, and I've personally been engaged in volunteering. So 
I love teaching. So I've continued doing that because that's the one thing I can do. And so I helped with the creation of the Indaba, you know, raising funding and so for the first two Indabas. I even helped going over the coding exercises and simplifying them and so on for the labs to run and have runs the labs with the first Indabas. And also um, the Indaba, by the way, it's one of these meetings that we offer in Africa. It, it's a gathering of people, students, startups, and it's aimed at promoting artificial intelligence and the use of technology in Africa, increasing access uh, for the African continent to AI. And that also inspired the creation of several other efforts across the world. One that I'm also involved with is Kipo in Latin America. So I also attended the first Kipo and in a few weeks, I will be going to my first meeting in in three weeks. It's a, sorry, three years. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've traveled the conference. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to it because it's being with the students in Latin America or in Africa is extremely energizing. And it is so important to go there beyond the content, beyond talking about cognets or uh, whatever the, the, the flavor of the day is in AI. When students see you, and sometimes we forget who we are in AI, like, you know, Peter Bill, you're one of the greatest stars. I've always admired your work and so on. And millions of people admire you as well. So if you come to Latin America, if you come to Kipo in person and not just give a, a ho hopefully when they're in the future, and this is true of anyone in AI, I think most of the people you've interviewed in this show, just by being there and the students seeing that they can have a conversation with you and they actually realize that, hey, this person is not as clever as I thought. I, I you know, I'm as, just as clever as this person and I, I can discuss research with them. And that gives people a sense of empowerment that allows them to realize that I, I can also achieve that. I can go far and and, and I know this because I was one of those kids in Africa. And I remember talking to Professor Limebeer, who is this control guy from Imperial College. And for me, meeting as a student, a professor from Imperial College was, it was like, I don't know, meeting the Dalai Lama or, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was an incredible transformative moment because that's when I realized I could be part of that dialogue and I couldn't overemphasize that, but it's the first thing you can give people. It's just the ability to believe that they can do it, that they can be part of it. And so that's a little bit that I do. And I encourage everyone watching this podcast to consider attending Kipo or Indaba or some of the meetings in Southeast Asia and throughout the world. It's really important, I guess, for us, as especially senior um, researchers in AI to do that. Um, and because that just allows for the community to grow there. And it's also important to kind of talk to the people there and the startups. There's a whole ecosystem that you want to grow. And, and it's also important that then that ecosystem starts growing and that it's the people there that start leading it and directing it. And I've, I've loved how the Indaba grew and it led to many localized meetings, the Indaba X meetings all throughout Africa. And it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year when you go to one of these meetings and, you, and you're able to engage with so many young, uh, ambitious uh, people. It's interesting you bring it up because a couple of things come to my mind now. And the one, well, you you cleverly snuck an invitation in there for me. I'm, I'll, I'd love to take you up on that someday, even though this year I probably won't, won't travel yet myself, but I look forward to it. Other thing that comes to my mind is when you talk about the energy, the excitement, while I haven't been to one of the events in Africa or South America yet myself, the Black and AI workshops bring a lot of the researchers to NIRIPS, right? And that workshop has tremendous energy 
And I have to imagine it's a bit similar to what you're talking about. And it's absolutely yes. amazing the energy that's there. Very much so. It's wonderful. It's one of it's, you know, we talk about the transformations that we've had by in the field, by going into, you know, brought in by the GPUs or brought in by the transformers. But I think the people transformation mm -hmm. has been equally amazing. I really love where our community is heading. I think there's a lot more work that we all have to do, but the, the work where we're moving in terms of diversity and inclusion, I think it's, it, it's been one of the most important things that has happened to the field. And I just hope we can all continue to move in, in that direction towards making sure that our tools our research and so on capitalizes on what everyone can offer on diversity and to ensure that it's, it's an inclusive technology that we're building towards an inclusive community. Um, yeah, I think that's essential for what we want to achieve in the long run. Now, if I can riff off of that, if I look at the current trends in AI, one of the trends is building very large models, right? And building those models is very expensive. So even though we might educate people and so forth, educating might not be enough. We need to actually give people quite large resources in one way or another to be able to do those kinds of things. Or maybe there's other ways. I mean, obviously the large models are not the only thing happening, but it is where a lot of the excitement is. So I'm curious how you think about that, how that, that trend interacts with everything you just said. Yeah, as I think you, in a way, answered the question, the large models is not everything. I think the large models is a very exciting direction of research. I mean, we all know that extra compute allows us to build bigger models and bigger models do tend to have properties that smaller models don't have, allows to do certain kind of research that we can't do with small models. So the large scale empirical work that's going on in the world is sort of very important is, and is advancing us in big leaps. But at the same time, there's a lot of innovation that can happen outside and that innovation can be at in fundamental work. And we see this happening all the time. I mean, we all talk about attention as attention is this corporate thing, but I, I do remember there was a student that came up with this thing. I remember interviewing the student in Oxford, that is a plantation <laughs> idea. And, and then, then went on to, um, yeah, this is the me too, but I don't know. And then it went on to Montreal and then developed the idea further with researchers in Montreal, uh, and Cho and Joshua and, and eventually, you know, it took many more iterations until the technique was fully you know, always gave birth to, you know, the transformers that we use now in the GPT-3, but it starts with a student coming up with this idea. And, and there's a lot more of these types of ideas, you know, you know, recently we see these structured state-based models and, 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 and we also see a lot of work with differential equations. There's a lot of things in terms of fundamental work that I think people can do. There is other type of work that I think is very important, which is to, how do we use the tools? Because even if we do have the good language models, and I, 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 eventually I think we were going to learn how to serve them more efficiently and allow people to fine tune them one way or the other. And if people can fine tune them efficiently and, and have access to enough compute through the various clouds that, you know, different organizations offer, then I think it, it does become possible to then address the next big challenge, which is what do we do with these tools? How do we make these tools useful in our communities? Because when you go, you know, I go often every year, I go to Argentina and so on, I have family there. So, and I go to South Africa as well. And when you're in, when you transport to those countries, you encounter a different reality, which is very different than say what you encounter in Berkeley or what I encounter here in London. So Nando, I like how, how you're saying that, you know, different parts of the world have different needs, challenges, and hence different opportunities to build AI applications, AI companies for that matter. C can you give some examples? I can, and this is probably a, another reason why it's, it's useful to travel 
and volunteer and, and attend meetings all over the world. When I went to the first in Darba, to give you an example, I learned about this phone app using like cheap phones that most people actually have access to. And one of these text apps is used to provide better healthcare. And one particular example that I thought was very poignant was where often moms will try to text a doctor to, to ask a question like, for example, why is my, my child hasn't been able to eat? I give my child water, my, uh, my child, you know, vomits, so is not able to stay hydrated. It's been one day or, or, and so on. What do I do? And sometimes all it takes is a, you know, a simple message and some piece of very simple piece of advice is like boil water and to be able to help that person. And because a lot of people in around the world are dying of dehydration, you know, very simple diseases that we don't even think about in the UK or the USA. So then the, the next day, our question for the startup was how because we don't have enough doctors, how do we try to automate a system? So to be able to, and, and this is actually something now I, uh, I would think with language models, we could do a bit better, which is to provide help to people who are in need of that help. And, you know, it's about enhancing what people can do. So one of the things I would hope of AI is that AI enhances every person to become, to some extent, better capable at providing first aid help or being able to deal with some medical conditions. And I think, yeah, that was a great example of a problem that I don't think about because I never encountered it here. But then when you go there, you realize it's a big problem. And then you realize that with some innovation, you could actually save many lives. And of course, then there's many other problems that we don't even think about here. You know, there's different economic systems, there's different security challenges, there's different economic problems, things to do with agriculture and so on. And there's, and it's only by being part of that world, by going there, by talking to people that one actually learns about all these very interesting research problems and is able to actually contribute. Yeah, and, and hopefully be able to also really see the true benefits of our technology, you know, helping most of the people on the planet. I really like how much time you spend on, on just making sure you reach much more of the world than, than most of us end up spending time on and, and then making it clear how we can also contribute now and though. I feel a little pedestrian asking the next question in, in contrast to everything you just talked about. But I guess for people like us, a lot of the work that we see happen is coding. And coding can be very time-consuming and frustrating at times because most people have a clear idea of what they want, but then somehow computer won't do it exactly right. And you recently were one of the big contributors to AlphaCode at DeepMind. Can you say a bit more about AlphaCode? First of all, it was a wonderful experience um, to be part of it. It was a project done by a large team, and it was wonderful to witness what people were capable of doing. Um, and so AlphaCode um, is, so every year, many schools, Berkeley is very good at this, <laughs> um, compete internationally or nationally and so on in these coding competitions where you're, you're given a problem in English, you know, for example, you, I don't know, you have um, certain goods and you want to distribute them one way, which is the best way to optimal way to solve that problem. And then a very smart, you know, the smartest uh, students at coding and so on from all universities get together in teams and then they go to these competitions and then they quickly try to hack some code that solves the problem. And so from a perspective of doing research in AI, it seemed like a very interesting problem of to, it's a good challenge because it's very easy to measure and so on. And, and it's of wide interest. How could we go automatically from that description to code that solves the problem? 
And so AlphaCode was an attempt at doing this. It capitalizes on using, no surprise here, transformers. And they take that description and say input and then generate and the code. It uses a few other tricks like sampling many solutions and it uses a lot of very clever ideas as to how to narrow down those samples to so that we have solutions that are able to, you know, so we, so we actually able to compete and, and get a, a reasonable success rate of writing code that addresses those problems. And it's been truly, it was truly remarkable how well it did. It wasn't perfect. I myself was looking at a piece of code and sometimes there's a, I'm reading the code and then there's a for loop doing a bunch of things and then there's more code. And then you realize, why is this for loop here? And you realize it's just, it, well, it's just extra code that the machine created and that is not used anyway. <laughs> it's a bit like when grad students just throw everything in the exam <laughs> and some of it will be the solution and some of it is things that they were thinking about. <laughs> and it's not perfect, but I love there was, um, there was a blog that actually says that it's like, it felt like there was a dog in a room and the dog was speaking English, but everyone was pointing the finger at this dog for not having proper grammar. And then, yeah, that blog, I think it's, um, best described how I felt about it. it. It was just, for me, it's just, it was amazing that it could do that because I was a bit involved, uh, with the students doing these coding competitions at UBC about 20 years ago. Or so, and so to see a machine doing that is just quite remarkable. And I think even one day, perhaps these machines will move on from having a performance of say being in the top 20% and so on to actually being some of the top coders. And out of it, there's also, besides this sort of that challenge, that also has led to a lot of people and not just DeepMind, but also many other places, including OpenAI and so on, to come up with uh, tools to improve the, the workflow of engineers and coders. I find myself nowadays, like I type a P and it completely writes the whole print statement that I had thought about when I was debugging something. And it's, it's here, it feels like, oh, it's reading my mind, <laughs> but it's turned out to be a very useful tool. Yes, becoming very real. I talk with my students and they have these code completion add-ons turned on pretty much all the time. Doesn't mean it always auto completes correctly, but very often it does. And, and if it doesn't, then you know they can always not accept it. And apparently, it speeds up their work tremendously as they're coding for their research projects. It does, especially if you're not coding every day and you just dive in every week, maybe a couple of hours. Then you're always a bit rusty of the syntax, but this thing just solves that problem for you. It's it's quite amazing how how much it can improve your productivity. Now, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the agents that can help code is the generality, right? It's, it's something, coding is such a general thing. Compare that to something more specific, like learning to play maybe the game of chess or learning to play the game of Go. Those, those breakthroughs were very interesting because the methods were shared across the different games in the end, but the agents were not shared. It was a separate agent, separately trained, yes, with the same method, but separately trained, building its own neural net, essentially, to get the job done, and a separate agent, separate neural net for the next game, and so forth. And coding is much more general. And in fact, a bunch of your work is really pushing the frontier of generality, going from these specialist agents that are hyper-trained on this one thing, and sure, maybe co can compete with humans on this one thing really well, but then it doesn't mean they really understand anything else. And so I think the Gato work that you recently published is a great example of pushing the generality to a whole other level. Can you say a bit more about what you did in that work and also maybe what inspired you? What made you think that this would be possible? Because to me, it was surprising how, how well it worked and how it was such a general agent doing so many things with one agent. I think for many researchers, that's always been one of the dreams is to be able to 
design one, one, one single intelligent system that is capable of doing. And I think what captures the imagination is that can do anything that a human can do, for example. And perhaps it can do other things and maybe it does it slightly different or completely different than how a human would do it. But we've always aimed for this generality. In fact, you know, people started calling AI AGI because to emphasize the importance of generality. As you know, I, I was one of the people that attended the CIFAR meetings where the sort of deep learning came from and right from the beginning. And I think within that community, the, within the uh, Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, where, you know, I think you attended a few of those meetings and Andrew Eng and all these wonderful people you had in your, in your meetings, there was always a connection with neuroscience. And so the moment you think about neuroscience, you actually realize, well, this piece of tissue is sort of very general, this piece of brain tissue, it can be used for perception or it can be used for action. Um, and even you see these implants where you can implant something with pins in your mouth and with a camera, if you, you know, cut your vision, just with time through these pins and depth, depth processing, you actually start being able to tell depth without seeing. And, and funny enough is the visual cortex that gets recruited to do this still, even though the sensation is tactile, it's, it's, it's haptic, it's no longer visual. And of course, there's many words in neuroscience. It's a very old idea going back to the 70s, kind of pinpoint this, that there's perhaps just one universal algorithm that can do it all. And, and so then it does beg the question, when we have these new architectures and advances, are we now at the point where we can revisit that question and how we would we go about doing it? And I was fortunate enough to have encountered in my time at DeepMind a colleague, Scott Reed, who is very passionate about um, the same things and who is in incredible at executing plans and executing ideas. It's also fortunate to have this brilliant team of young people who are very keen to make this happen. So we spent two years working on this. Um, and at many points, we sort of forewent, you know, going for publications as always, just often a drive that we researchers have, and, and just to focus on sort of bringing in more and more, doing some of the boring stuff, like let's bring in more and more data sets, let's build more and more infrastructure. And that's sort of there's up and downs in that process, because sometimes you wonder, are we, uh, should we not just like speed us up and do this or that? And, um, but so that's how the project came to be. And we just aimed to see whether we could use, come up with a single model, single big neural network that would be able to take all types of input, whether it's vision, whether it's dialogue, whether it's speech, whether it's, you know, torques, or, you know, proprioception and so on, and be able to either talk to you or control a robot arm. And so, and eventually, well, you've seen the results. We've, we've had some success with it, I think, but I do see that as a first step. I also don't see that as the only work. I'm very grateful for you thinking of it that way. I think it was one of the first, but you yourself <laughs> came up with Decision Transformers, which is a very similar idea in spirit. And, and I think there were other ideas at the time, Sergei Levine and so on. But as I said, I think that's been a drive in machine learning for for many years. And in fact, I remember discussing this at CIFAR with Andrew Ng, who was also very interested in these types of models. And in fact, that was at a time when just before he went and started Google Brain. And it was believing in this dream that kind of drove that, I think, to some extent. And I think we still have a long way to go, but that, that dream is still alive. I'm happy that people now see that it, it may be possible and that there's more and more people interested in working on it. And, and of course, there remain many problems. There remain many challenges, many things we haven't shown. And 
But yeah, it's definitely something I'm excited about and uh, that I plan to continue working on. And I think many other researchers, including yourself, are working on it now. And by the way, your recent uh, paper, I have to put an ad here as well for all researchers to go and read pictures of your latest paper generating videos using YouTube videos. I think it's brilliant. And it is this kind of idea that I think will be very important to build a more general agents. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's all very related. I think in the Gato paper that you wrote, yes, it ties to decision transformer quite closely, but I would say there's something fundamentally different, which is the insight that you can tokenize everything and that people used to think of multimodal learning as there's this mode and that mode and it's all its own thing. And you realize that if you properly, of course, a tokenization needs to be done right, but if you properly turn it all into a sequence of tokens, a single architecture can just process it all and, and generalize, which is, which is really beautiful, I think. Yeah, it's, it's also based on the whole idea. I, I first tried to do something like that using a method called PAQ. So I think a lot of people might not know PAQ, but it was a method invented for text compression. And it was for the very long time state of the art. And so PAQ would take images and text and all sorts of things. They would transform it to sequences and basically sequences of bits. And so, you know, if you wanted to be efficient, you kind of go to bits and you try to make the code. And then it used essentially context. It was sort of hand engineered features using the context of the string of bits to gate a neural network and predict the next bit. And then it's an architecture that consists of many neurons and every neuron is just trying to predict the next bit. It's a very interesting architecture. So I became quite fascinated by it at the same time that Ilya was working on his uh, Lithium 3 RNNs <laughs> as a student in um, Toronto. And so I remember doing, working in this and, and trying to convince Ilya that he should switch from his RNNs to <laughs> Uh, PAQ, but I'm glad he didn't because that actually was quite fruitful. But it, it was, but the idea was already there where we were using a single model to deal with images, to deal with, and, and in fact, at the time, I think I was using an, an RBM or, or a sparse coding model. And then, and then I was taking a sequence of the, the hidden units. And then I was using, doing PAQ with, by the way, I shouldn't say I was. A student of mine at the time, Byron Knoll, who is now at Google and has continued working on this and similar ideas. And he was a brilliant coder and he was able to hack all the stuff in at the bit level, <laughs> bit operations. But yeah, so that idea was all, all the idea of using everything should be just a single sequence was already there in the literature. And so, yes, Scott. I remember when I discussed this with him, he was very excited about it and he definitely pushed for it. And he was a champion of this idea, DeepMind, and eventually succeeded with it. And I think actually Sergey, Sergey Levine and his team, they also came up with a very similar model where I think they were also tokenizing everything to just use a sequence transformer. So it's very closely related to that. I think what we did differently, perhaps, is we actually devoted a lot of time to it. I think we start, might have started with early and some working on it, and we just made sure that we brought in as many data sets and as many tasks as possible. And, and that's a big challenge because once you have, if you want an agent to do 600 things in environments, that means you need to be running 600 environments during your training. And that's a massive and therefore in, in evaluation and data processing and so on. So yeah, one of the, the people that led this, um, Sergio and Gomez in, uh, in the DeepMind team, I think he did wonderful engineering work, Gabe as well. Yeah, there were lots of engineers really working very hard to, to make that infrastructure possible to be able to run those experiments. Talk about generalist agents. Gato we talked about is essentially learning ahead of time from its own experiences and then can do things 
later. We also did some work where you don't have to do all the learning ahead of time. You get to go watch videos, retrieve videos, which to me seems brilliant. That's, that that's essentially matches what most humans do. If I, if I have to fix something in the house, I will find a YouTube video that shows me how I'm supposed to, you know, fix this drain or something. I can't do very complicated things, but the very simple things that I go watch a video and all of a sudden I can do it, even though I've never done it before. But you've done this with AI agents. Can you say a bit more about what, what kind of capabilities did the agents acquire? It actually started by me watching my nephew playing uh, a Minecraft <laughs> and he became very good at it just by watching. And I was like, but that's how we should be learning games. We shouldn't be doing reinforcement learning in an environment. There's so much content on the web <laughs> that we should just <laughs> learn from it. And now it's many people do that and it's kind of, people have done it very well with Minecraft recently. But at the time I thought, you know, let's try to do that. Let's try to capitalize on everything that exists out, out there. And of course, there is a question then of domain, you know, how different are all the versions of Atari in YouTube from the simulator that you have. But if you do happen to have a simulator and you have many videos, then you can take advantage. You can do some transformation. So there'll be a small domain gap but you can deal with that and then be able to sort of try things in the simulator environment and learn to play games. So at least for Atari, we were able to go and just watch videos of what's going on and then be able to play those games and be able to essentially, you know, play them much better thing than if we were using much more expensive RL agents from scratch. Um, I think that paper that we did back then, that was sort of a taste of what could be possible. I often in research, I, I like to find problems that, you know, that people haven't really tried them really hard and, and to just to show that something is possible. And because I think that's, you know, just like when you inspire students and you go there and you just they, once they believe it can be done, then they, they will go ahead and, and do it. I think with research is a bit like that. If, if you can show that it's possible to do something, then soon after there'll be a chain of other papers and products and so on that will far improve upon that. Um, and I still believe that we have a long way to go in terms of taking advantage of that idea. There's still all of that video, as you said, on how to do anything on the internet, and we could take advantage of that video, not just to play games, but I think ultimately, as we're able to, especially now that we're building much better video models of the world, you know, with the fusion techniques of masking transformers and so on, I think we will soon see different realizations of that idea where people really can sort of learn from how to videos in YouTube and they're able to transfer it to, I think the, the most obvious thing is how to get robots to do different things. Because it's, as, as you know, because you have more experience in this than anyone, I think collecting robot data is very hard. Um, we often see these videos yes. of people teleoperating their hands of the robots and so on. But then when you actually go and try these teleoperation stuff, it doesn't really work. <laughs> it, it's very hard to do good teleoperation. And of course, you're limited by how many humans have the stamina to actually teleoperate robots. And and then there's this other thing that happens in the lab, which is you're teleoperating to collect data, and then you know your gripper breaks down, or it or you have to upgrade it because the company has a new gripper. And any of those changes and dynamics of the machine or in the appearance and so on just mean that you have to collect data again from scratch. And so it's very time consuming to collect data. It's also very wasteful to just have to collect again and throw data away. And there is, I think even if we were to pull all the data from all the labs in the world, perhaps it's, it's still, so eventually you do have to go to YouTube, see how people do things, and then be able to come up with innovative ways of transferring that knowledge 
so that the robots can actually just watch, just like we humans see others doing something and then we do it. I think that ability is, it, that is something don't expect. We're going to see a lot more of within the next years. And it's, I, I think it could be transformational for robotics. I'd be curious to, uh, I'm going to turn the interview on you. How transformational do you think it will be in robotics if the robots can just watch a human doing something and then are able to go and do it? What prevents us from, based on your experience, from doing that? Is it the question? Is it algorithmic? Is it hardware? It's a combination, but I, I think if we can actually have a neural network that is sufficiently capable to watch a person do something and then know how a robot should do it, I think it it really opened up many, many opportunities and it could be watching a person live in the same context, which would be a little easier, or it could be retrieving videos online from related contexts like we as humans do. We usually don't have a video where somebody did the same little fixing thing in our own house. It was a video in another house and doing some something very similar, right? So yeah, I think it'd be when I think about robotics myself, it's essentially Repeated motion robots solve problem for a very long time, building cars, building electronics, and so forth. But that's only two, three million robots in the world. Then you run out of opportunities for these robots because the rest of the world is not so repetitive. And then think what I'm doing now, warehousing and related things in terms of difficulty, farming, recycling. I think that's the current generation of things that are possible. But yeah, absolutely. I think what you're talking about is the next thing after that. And then you, you can think once you can do that, learn from one video how to do something as a robot, I think you can go into houses and be super, super helpful. There's a question, as you alluded to, now the, everything's built for humans. Are the robot grippers generally enough to do all the things we want them to do in a house today? Probably not, but maybe it'll give a very strong incentive for some really great mechanical, electrical and mechanical engineers to dive in and build some robust human size hands that then could do the similar things. So yeah, I'm, you know, it's hard. It's, it's kind of a weird question in many ways for me because it, it feels like it's, it's been the goal of my research for like 10, 10, 20 years. And it's kind of weird to think that maybe we could actually do this in the next, who knows, handful of years, maybe even sooner. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, in some ways, solving that is easier than solving robotics because you also have to deal with the hardware question. And the hardware question isn't easy. And there's economic factors that also factor into, sure. into the equation. Building machines is not, uh, actual machines is not cheap. I do think it's important. I still think robotics is one of the most important operators of research in, in, in AI and intelligent technology. Because I think, you know, for dangerous activity, you know, activities and so, you know, where, when an activity would be too dangerous for a human, you know, where you need robots and these arise, especially when, when problems arise that humans have to deal with earthquakes and so on, as we sadly witnessing recently. It would be really useful to have machines that could help in those scenarios. I also think ultimately, you know, for space exploration, it also becomes really important to rely on, on machines because it's, it's very, it would be very harsh for humans, say, to go to Mars and so on. But as you know, we can already send robots there and so on. So I think that's the robots are the first step, but I think if we, if you do really one day end up being an interplanetary species. Uh, then robots will play an essential key role in that. There'll be the enabling technology that will allow us to achieve that. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely agreed. Switching from robots to a slightly different topic, as you've alluded to in this conversation in the past, it's, it's particularly interesting to, to, in research, to push things that haven't really been shown much sign of life before and all of a sudden you realize maybe there can be some sign of life here. Let's let's show something new. And a work that really stuck with me and influenced a lot of my work is your learning to learn work. You had this paper cleverly titled Learning to Learn 
by gradient descent, by gradient descent. And as I understand it, I mean, the big idea is that why should we write the learning program still? Can't the learning program also be learned, right? It's a recursive process in some ways. This paper is now from a couple of years ago. I'm, I'm really curious, maybe you can quickly recap what you did in the paper, but also give your perspective on what you think about learning to learn today. In terms of like my experience with it, it, it started, so I was pointed to this paper by one of my collaborators, Misha Daniel. And there was this paper by Smith Hoover where doing this with, uh, I think also with several of writer, I think. And it looked like a wonderful idea. One of these ideas that was worth revisiting and doing it with our modern neural networks. I became fascinated by it because I think in as much as possible, I, I always believe in capitalizing on the data that we have. Uh, but it sometimes I also find it interesting, just scientific curiosity as to how do things arise? Uh, how do things emerge? And so, and in particular, I was interested in I, you know, I was philosophizing a bit. I was thinking, you know, thinking of evolution as a learning process that then creates these biological machines that can learn. So it's a learning process, the dynamical adaptive process that has led to the generation of dynamically adaptive processes that are capable of learning amazing things like calculus and algebra. So. And so to me, it made sense that this, this is, we needed to, you know, endow our neural networks with that capability. And so we start working on it. We tried quite a few things and it was a bit frustrating in the beginning because we weren't getting um, very far with it. And then Martin, who was very young collaborator of mine at the time, uh, Martin Andrejevich, who actually went to work with you afterwards and did a wonderful work. Uh, with you, he sort of persevered with the idea and eventually got it to work. And it was, you know, with the help of you others, Sergio and so on. And then I, I became really excited about it because I, I thought, you know, there's an opportunity here for uh, neural networks to learn what the other neural networks should be like, what that, what the algorithm should be. It's like, we still hand engineering a learning algorithm. Unfortunately, it's still Adam. <laughs> After many, many years that most people use, <laughs> so we haven't been able to engineer anything much better than that. Um, but there was the possibility that we could engineer better algorithms, so we could have a neural network generate new neural networks that would solve the problem. And, you know, that led to some lots of brilliant ideas on learning to learn. There was an explosion of works in that area. Um, a lot of those words actually came from Berkeley, um, from your collaborators yourself. And more recently, I actually do see that manifesting itself with the big transformers uh, and the language models. So that's one of the emergent capabilities of these big models that has really amazed me, is that I still see them um, as, especially in the first shot, it's like you've, you've, when you pre-train your model, I feel like you've learned that initial thing. And then when you give, say, some context, especially if you're prompting it with a few short prompting, giving it a few sort of input example solution, input example solution, and then you give an input example and you give it a solution, I see creating that context with a transformer during prompting as essentially basically, um, you know, with, with your model, what you learned was the ability for you to be able to prompt the model so that it's, it's learning from few examples. So I, I see that as like few short learning to learn at amazing scale and generality. So I, I, I think now I see that that idea is actually happening a lot. And that's been one of the sort of really remarkable things of the big language models is that uh, is to see this emergent capability. But if you start dissecting and doing the math carefully, it's not too far from the things that we were doing before with, or, you know, one shot imitation learning and robotics, uh, we didn't quite have the, the, the big models and so on, but I think the ideas were quite similar. Um, of course there was a lot more constraint than what is now it's just like one single big model doing it. 
in language, a lot of the current work focuses on the very large models, right? And of course, they've had some amazing successes, unprecedented capabilities. I mean, there's a good reason there is so much focus on them right now. But there's another line of work, which you've actually done some of the early work, which still fascinates me, which is where the AI systems learn to communicate in the context of having to solve problems together and hence invent the notion of communication because it helps them be more effective. Maybe a bit the same way humans and animals have learned to communicate because it helps them survive better, helps them get more interesting things done. And it hasn't been as active recently, but I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I know I'm putting a bit on the spot here because you probably haven't prepared for this question, but yeah. what, what are your thoughts, Nando, on combining some of these things with the current large language models, or maybe even these things possibly in a few years supplanting today's large language models because somehow it's fundamentally more similar to how humans came to language? Yeah, it's definitely worth revisiting that idea in this context. I think that that, that would be a good project. <laughs> From, you know, it comes back to this question of do you use all your data or do you look at, try to understand, take a more scientific view and try to understand how did language emerge? And which is still, I think, an, an, well, in my view, it's still an open question. We don't know how it is that uh, we got to this point. So if you're pragmatic, you have to realize that we have all this human language produced by the whole human race through the years on the internet, recorded mostly. So you could take advantage of that to train big models. And why should we bother to go and do this other type of research? It's probably the same reason of why we do history, why we do many other things, because it's it's an unknown. It, it, it's something for which we don't know the answer. And I think it's, I think many of us would love to know how language comes to be. And so that initial project that was led by uh, my student then Jacob Burster, the professor now in Oxford, and Yanis Osayel, who is also now at, at DeepMind, tried to use multi-agent reinforcement learning and sort of created environments where the only way the agents could possibly uh, solve the problems was if they were to send information to each other that was meaningful. And they also put some of these bottlenecks, like sampling before the softmax and so on, to, to force the models to use discrete communication if, then, if the channels were noisy. Because we wanted to know whether they would come up with discrete or discrete uh, representations to communicate more efficiently, to be able to solve the task. We also tried to see whether there would be possible for them to learn to sort of eventually combining these symbols in compositional ways, in just, in just in the same way that we compose with language. And that turns out to be very hard. And I think there was, there's been some progress, but there's still, we still have a long way to go. I mean, one example that I love is like in nature, you have monk, you know, like there's this monkey and I forget the name of, uh, at some point I knew the scientific name of this monkey. So it's Africa. Um, but they essentially have different, they have sentinel monkeys and, and then when a predator is nearby, whether it's an eagle or a snake or some, I think it's a jaguars there too. If one of these animals is coming, they, they will produce a different sound that is indicative of what animal is nearby. And of course, the response of the monkey will be different if it's an eagle or, you know, if it's an animal or a predator on the ground. If it's an eagle, they can just jump up a tree. But if they're on the canopy on top, then, you know, they become, sorry, if it's an eagle, they're shooting up the tree because they don't want to, you know, they, they could be vulnerable from the air. So they will do something appropriate to safeguard themselves from the predator. And so it's, it's easy to build a, an RL system where the agents will learn to do that. The thing that was very hard to figure out for me is the next step when eventually one monkey sort of learns to manipulate that symbol or starts thinking, you know, 
I would like to get all this food, but there is this other monkey that I don't like, and I don't want this other monkey to get my food. <laughs> and so maybe I will just tell this monkey that it's a tiger, even though it's an eagle. <laughs> <laughs> and then that way I can get all the food. Cowboy. Oh um, I mean, that, that's um, a rather deceitful way to stop <laughs> intelligence, unfortunately, but a lack of a bad example. That it's being able to then sort of reason about those chants to go to that sort of high level of abstraction. It's when those chant, just the sounds, the discrete symbols sort of transcend the immediate material. And, and then we can start manipulating them. And just like we humans use words or, or we come up with these figure eights that are horizontal, we call them infinities and when we manipulate them, and we're able to create knowledge about things we've never seen in the universe. And eventually we see those things with some fancy telescopes. It's so much of science has come, especially cosmology and so on, has come as a result of us manipulating these abstract symbols. We can make, we can make predictions that are so far beyond anything that we can see or will ever experience. And how you could create new symbols, create new knowledge. That I think is still a big open question, even, and it's, it perhaps is going to become very relevant uh, for language models, which is not just to um, paraphrase what humans do and so on, and or sort of just combine what, uh, what text that is on the web, but it's actually, um, you know, language models that maybe sit down with coffee <laughs> and start thinking about the mysteries of the universe and start creating new symbols, new abstractions that allow them to then do some um, inferences and be able to make some predictions about the universe and be able to also come up with testable ways to verify those own predictions. So I think invariably we will revisit this question of learning language, which of course has a lot to do with learning to communicate. It's very interesting because you're now talking about agents that could actually run experiments, right? Don't just output text, but would maybe press some buttons somewhere on a, either on a website or maybe physically be incarnated in a robot, try things out in the real world, see what happens. And from that, make new hypotheses and learn faster, hopefully, than they could otherwise and have a deeper understanding of how things work. That's really fascinating. I'm curious if we, if we kind of zoom out for a moment, Nando. When you think about the next, let's say, five to 10 years in artificial intelligence, what are the things that you are most excited about? Well, I think a lot of the things we've talked about today, I think. I imagine. Everything we've talked about today, the mainstream discussion now is, of course, on big language models. And of course, the questions, the important questions arise there. You know, how do you make the, the language models actually be factual and accurate. So this question of truth, there's questions about how do you make these technologies actually safe? How do you make them truly useful for humans? How do we, and then, you know, and then there's engineering questions. How do we make sure that we imported engineering questions? How do we make sure that we trade them with a lot less energy? How do we make them also, you know, cheaper, easier to access? And so on. And of course, all that comes with security and safety. And also how do we contextualize them? Because we were talking about communication and language. So th there's different types of communication. Sometimes there's communication where you, where like, for example, you're interviewing me here. And I, I know that at this point, you don't want to just chit chat and I shouldn't just go and start telling you, um, you know, about what I ate for lunch today and spend the rest hour of the day in that conversation. I don't think the viewers would appreciate that. And so the context is to a large extent determines what you talk about or, um, and of course context comes in many ways. It could be where you are, it could be who you're talking to. And I think that's something where we need to make progress on and and of course and i do think we're going to see a lot of progress because there's a lot of driving forces that will make us go in that direction um 
also, I'm interested in the sort of scientific question, the sort of thing, experiments that we're talking, as we're talking about. And, and in particular, I'm thinking of the experiments that we do in our minds, these thought experiments, like Einstein used to talk about, imagine someone traveling at the speed of light and thought. This is something that I would hope one day the language models could do. Because a lot of the experiments, the experiments with physicists do, for example, cosmologists and so on, the sort of thing that Stephen Hawking was good at, and these are experiments you do with pen and paper. And so provided you have a way of uh, using tools of externalizing knowledge, of storing externally, retrieving this knowledge, and, and provided that then you can sort of group things and create new abstractions to be able to sort of talk about problems, I would hope that we would see a lot of scientific progress. And I think that scientific progress would, I mean, c can you imagine if the, if the machines start telling us, no, guys, you had this all wrong with how to build fusion reactors. Let me tell you, I've spent the last few seconds thinking about it. I derived the equivalent of knowledge of uh, humans physicist for the last 200 <laughs> years. And here's my conclusions to how you could build this nuclear reactor. And you can, I've created a simulation for you, go and test it, uh, verify that it's, uh, you know, check my idea. Uh, this is what you need to do to verify it. And so on. here's some tests. I mean, it would be wonderful. And we're starting to see that a bit in biology. There's been a revolution in biology, um, right? Like with, yeah. Obviously, I'm extremely proud of AlphaFold. With AlphaFold, we've seen a lot of biologists getting very interested in, in neural networks and machine learning, and so we see a lot of work on these nano machines and proteins and so on. And and we're not quite there, but I would hope the neural networks eventually with the ability to think about problems and reason about many complex variables and be able to derive new knowledge, just like we do by reasoning, um, by abstracting, um, and maybe by advising on what experiments should be conducted, what machines could be created. Yeah, that's what I would hope this will take us. Because, I mean, if it takes us to solving our energy problems in getting safe, fusion reactor to bring energy to the entire world that would solve, you know, the problems of famine and so on and economic problems. Or even, you know, reason about, we're starting to see a lot of uh, climate models, uh, better climate models than we had in the past. And it would be interesting if the models could reason and help us, you know, make better predictions as to how we could go about what kind of interventions we could do to ensure that we protect our environment and even economic systems i think economic and political systems are very very complex even for uh well-intentioned policymakers to to be able to comprehend to make relevant policy so if if the machines could assist people to come up with better economic policies, better environmental policies, and so on. I think that would be wonderful. That, I think, is sort of the mainstream. At least that's my dream of where I would love to see this going. And of course, a lot of this is... That's beautiful, Nana. Augmenting scientists, but I also would like to augment the people who are doing labor. My parents... They just went to work. And, and in fact, as a kid, I would go to work with my dad. I worked in construction and as an electrician. And, and it's hard work. And for most people on this planet, you don't go to, you know, we are so lucky. I go to work to explore ideas. And I have this, you know, I, I, I'm so fortunate that I work in this wonderful environment that is full of these incredibly smart people who love to explain things to me and brainstorm with me and so on. And we're just having these big dreams and I get the opportunity to talk to people like you and Christian Kane podcasts and so on. But for a lot of people on this planet, you go to work 
to bring home the bacon, to, to make money, to look after your families and so on. And sometimes it's a lot of hard work and sometimes you're very tired and sometimes you break a toe or something, but you still know you have to go to work and even if you're in pain and, and that's the reality for most people. And so I think for a lot of those tedious tasks, it would be important, um, to, um, help people w with again, but that will involve hard work. That's where robotics comes in and not necessarily, um, replacements of labor, but just machines that are meant to make it easier for people to do their jobs or that allow them to focus on more creative endeavors. I think, I think the job market for sure will be evolving in the future. But what I think it's important is that if we evolve all the privileged jobs and that we don't forget to also make sure the jobs for the less privileged people also evolve so that they can have much more meaningful lives, perhaps spend time and more time with their families. And of course, with this, I understand that this is very utopian and, and I'm not touching the questions of economics or motivation, psychological factors and so on. But these are also the things that we need to work on uh, all the time. It's really beautiful, Nando. Um, I would like to ask you one, one last question. I know your path in terms of PhD at Cambridge, postdoc at Berkeley, professor at UBC and Oxford, and then your own startup ending up at, at DeepMind slash Google. Um, but before then, what, what was the original thing that got you excited about artificial intelligence? I was just lucky. Like, I think a lot of things in life are not decisions you make, but just you find yourself in a context and you make the best out of that context where you are. Often when you, I couldn't say that I plan things very far ahead. Maybe, maybe I planned to do a degree and then I knew that that was going to last at least four years. But quite often you encounter, uh, yourself in a situation in life, whether it's a challenge or an opportunity, and you have to identify what is just what, 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 what you should do. I was lucky enough that when I was in my third year in undergrad, there was a project on neural networks and by a control professor, Professor McLeod, the university of the advanced run. And I was like, what are these? So I went to the library. At first I thought, oh no, I don't want to do this. It's going to be one of those TCPIP protocol things. I'm going to hit this course. <laughs> but it was a completely different kind of network. Sort of you open the book and there's a picture of a brain. <laughs> and I, I think that's it. I got hooked. There were a few books in the library there and I just couldn't stop reading about it. And then I had to go in MATLAB and implement line backprop. <laughs> and yeah, back. Um, almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Right exposure during your undergrad studies. I was lucky that I had that opportunity. Well, then I feel really fortunate you had the time to come on to the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you so much, Peter. And I love your podcast and it's been a pleasure to listen to it yeah, through the years, especially during the pandemic and so on. You was always a good companion. It's a wonderful job that you do. It really brings what we do to so many people. Thank you, Nando. Really appreciate it.